And it's not something that's into the future, but it's something that's happening right now. It's real. You don't need a scientist to come and tell me that this is happening. We can see it already for ourselves. Welcome everyone to 100 Climate Conversations. Thank you so much for joining us. As always, I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the ancestral homelands upon which the powerhouse museums are situated. We respect their elders, ancestors, and recognise their sovereignty was never ceded. To the Gadigal people whose land this talk is being recorded on, I acknowledge that the colonisation of this continent started here. I acknowledge your resistance and your resilience, and that despite violent attempts, your cultures, land, and your people are still here. Today is number 64 of 100 conversations happening every Friday. Thank you to everyone tuning into the podcast every week and to our live audience for your support. We're recording live today in the boiler hall of the Powerhouse Museum. Before it was home to the museum, it was the Ultimo Power Station. Built in 1899, it supplied coal-powered electricity to Sydney's tram system into the 1960s. In the context of this architectural artefact, we shift our focus forward to the innovations of the net zero revolution. My name is Rachel Hocking, and I'm a Walpuri woman from the Tanami Desert, from a community called Lajamanu in the Northern Territory. I've lived and worked on Gadigal land for the past eight to nine years, and so I'm a visitor here, and I feel really grateful every day to walk on this country. Time to hear about my deadly guest. Torres Webb is a proud far north Queenslander, an Indigenous man from Arab or Darnley Island in the Torres Strait. Torres has a long history of working with a range of educational institutions and communities to promote and showcase the depth of Indigenous scientific knowledge, ways of being, knowing and doing. He has significant experience developing science curriculum for all Australian educational sectors. Utilising inquiry and strength-based approaches to learning and teaching, he focuses on building teacher capability to authentically and respectfully embed Indigenous science knowledges in their practice. We are so honoured to have him here with us today. Please put your hands together for Torres. You are from Arab Island, which is just such a beautiful thing to have learnt about you because it's one of the islands I've actually visited in the Torres Strait. Um, I thought that there'd be quite a few people here and listening, though, who probably have never been to Arab before. Can you tell us a little bit about your homeland? Yeah, it would be my pleasure. Arub, Darnley Island, as it's also known, uh, is actually situated in the far eastern part of the Torres Strait, about 350 kilometres, nautical kilometres, to the far east. Uh, it's a beautiful volcanic island. Uh, really rich volcanic soil with beautiful um, surrounding reefs. It's really at the, at the top of the, of the Great Barrier Reef. Pristine, uh, beautiful marine resources. And um, yeah, such a, it's a lovely area and, and beautiful people. Can you tell us a little bit about some of your favourite things about the island growing up with fishing or playing on the volcanic rock? I want to yes. hear a little bit about what childhood is like. Yeah. Oh, well, I'd love to share some more. Uh, it was a beautiful um, childhood li growing up in far north Queensland and also childhood up in the Torres Strait. Uh, a lot of our culture is based around uh, horticulture, growing our own um, food resources, 
um, hunting and fishing in the, the fish traps that surround the islands. Amazing ancient fish traps that have been um, designed with um, such in-depth scientific knowledge. These are the rocks, aren't they? These are the volcanic rocks that are around that actually are in alignment with the different tides mm. and phases of the moon to make uh, your, your livelihood and sustainability a real ease to be able to, to catch that food, but to live in harmony with the natural environment and the flow of the seasons. Incredible. How special to grow up with your culture so rich and respected. Like your knowledge was on display every single day in your home. That's incredible. Yeah, it's fantastic. And there's the, that um, knowledge of, of living in harmony with our natural environment, but also the relationship, not only with the different seasons, but with our, our family kinship networks mm. that have extend not only within our own home island, but in our neighboring communities and also internationally with trade um, partnerships through to Papua New Guinea and all the way down to the mainland. The key point there has always been about um, the relationship to place, yeah. to people and kin and our wider network. That's incredible. And so how does growing up in a place like Arab, how does that inform your relationship to country growing up? Well, there's, there's nothing that can really describe a connection a connection to your own home soil and to that um, your own place. Mm. It really instills a sense of uh, stewardship and custodianship to, to understand and know that it's been passed down and looked after from um, ancestors before mm. to, to still here to this day. And um, that important role to make sure it's still there for the, for the future. I'm going to talk a bit about your journey through education. Uh, you've said in the past that you developed a passion for science in particular and learning around about eight years old and that you defied teachers' expectations to go to university. So I wanted to break that down a little bit. What was your experience at school like and what were those teachers' expectations of you? Well, science and they call it science and STEM, it's everywhere and everything that we all do and have grown up, whether it be from uh, the traditional horticultural practices to making um, uh, hunting equipment, it's all there. Uh, when I went to school, unfortunately, the situations was that um, there wasn't the same high expectations for some of our um, Indigenous students um, and through that learning through various historical policies and, and practices that were, that were there from my parents before, which weren't allowed to go to school further. It actually stirred a fire in my belly to say, look, I can achieve in these facets of learning and that I want to take this pathway forward. Uh, so I continued on a journey in environmental science for, for my education, but that came from that passion of of wanting to see how we can best look after and protect our natural environment. Because it's really a, a key and core value for us, particularly for First Nations people, that connection. When we have a healthy country, we have healthy people. And that's not only the physical, but the, the whole, whole self. Yeah. Mm. I, I wanna get to that a little bit more in a sec, just to talk about your uh, upbringing surrounded by the sciences that your peoples have practiced, the mm. first scientists. 
and then your experience of science in the classroom. But before that, I just wanted to know if you could break down a little bit more how you have seen those low expectations of our model, of our children, impact our lives and our confidence. Yeah, no, good question. What I think and has seen is that there wasn't an opportunity for uh, these science knowledges to be showcased and to be um, really forefronted there that um, we've been the first scientists and continue to practice these um, science practices that are in harmony with the natural environment. Uh, I, I see um, that uh, we can better utilise these opportunities and platforms in these education systems. Yeah, and start mm. to push for that respect, you know? Respect, acknowledgement um, and, and two-way two -way understanding. So what do you think changes them when teachers start to have a better understanding of the cultural backgrounds of their students, but also the land that schools sit upon, Indigenous land? Yes. Well, we all know it takes a whole village to, to raise a child and, and actually grounding that education learning into a local community context that, that people can relate to, mm. that the students can relate to, they can see every day and they can see themselves in that curriculum and, and what's important to them. And especially if we're talking about climate, I think it's really important that that's integrated within all, within all that learning, but there needs to be that relationship with the local community, the elders and everyone that are around. I'm really curious, what, what did you learn or not learn about climate mm. and climate crisis when you were in school? Well, um, we knew that uh, we couldn't really see ourselves there within, within that curriculum and learning at school. There was nothing really, really showcased or, or really taught around that. But um, for myself, as I developed within my career um, and through stories that have been passed down, I knew that there was importance to how we can really have a voice around the changes that we see. What are some of those sciences that you grew up around? You know, you talked a little bit about fish traps already. What are some of the other sciences that you were exposed to um, growing up on your own country that you get really excited about? Oh, there's so many. Uh, one of them is also around our understanding of the um, astronomy mm. and those changes of seasons. Understanding that we have um, one of our constellations is called Tagai and he uh, holds the, the spear and also the fruits in the other hand. And those changes of when he moves throughout the sky then relate to our different practices um, on, on land, especially because where I'm from, it's a volcanic area, so it's related to our own sustainability mm -hmm. um, in our own horticulture and growing our own foods. And I've heard so much as well about that really tight relationship, very similar to on my own country with our totems as well, you know, I know you have shark relationships yes. that are so important and connected to your seasons as well. Yeah, indeed. There's another constellation reminding me called Bezam and there's the um, movement of what happens in the sky. There's also a re relationship and correlation um, on, the, on the earth and on the, on the land and sea. But with things that are changing now, we are starting to notice that there are some changes in the timing and the patterns of things that relate to um, that correlation between this, the stars and what's happening on the land and sea. Let's talk a bit about that because you are 
ended up doing some work as a ranger on mm. country. Can you tell us first about how you got into work as a ranger? Yeah, well, it started from uh, that passion of wanting to best look after our natural environment and understanding that when we have a, a strong country, a healthy country, we're going to have a healthy people. So I, I went through and studied um, environmental science at uni and became working as a ranger. It was a great job, connect to my own country, looking after that, and, and want to do that in a way that's that's aligns to our own values and way of looking after country. Absolutely. Before any ranger programs came to the shore. Incredible. So one of the first. Yes, indeed. Um, it makes me think about a story, a story related to um, uh, there was weed management. Scientists came to the island and said, OK, we've got uh, these certain class five weed species. Um, we'll need to be managing these. And I'm like, oh, OK, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, please come and show me what you're talking about. Oh, it's this kudzu vine here. And watch, oh, that, I know that traditional language, we call that weskipu. But actually, that's one of our food resources. Um, we don't want to be uh, spraying any chemicals to look after the landscape. We have our own ways, cool burning clear that landscape, replanting um, with various food resources. It must have been so interesting to have these Western scientists come in to use Latin words to talk about weeds, which you correctly identified as food sources for your people. What are those interactions like for you? What were those early interactions like for you, having yarns with Western scientists? Did it feel like a disconnect? Yeah, it really related to an understanding and a view of the the landscape and the and the values, uh, because from a indigenous perspective, we see it as, as a real whole holistic. How does it relate to our health? Mm. How does it relate to the learning and growing up of our children? Mm. How does it um, relate to so many aspects rather than just seeing things in a silo? Yeah. Okay, that's the science for that that aspect. But um, how does it relate to all aspects of our life? It's an ecosystem and we're part of it too as humans, you know, as the Indigenous First Peoples. 100%. Yeah. I want to go back to what you mentioned before about the changes you've started to notice across your lifetime. Was there a moment, um, particularly when you were doing work as a ranger, yeah. where country started to look different to you, to what it had mm. when you were younger? There were actually a few things that I noticed, and especially with regards to that um, water quality mm. and some of the erosion that's happening around the islands, um, the shifting of the sands and the, how the beaches have shrunk smaller. Yeah. And we're an oral culture. And so listening to the stories from my ancestors before and, and knowing that how that's changed, there's certainly been a lot of impacts to the area. We contribute some of the least to, to climate but unfortunately are impacted some by the worst and the most, um, which is really, you know, it's, we're on the front line and it's not something that's into the future, but it's something that's happening right now. It's real. That's you don't need a scientist to come and tell me that this is happening. We can see it already for ourselves. And it's such, a, such an important point to hammer home, you know, like you said, First Nations people mostly who are living in small communities for the most part, mm. do have such a low footprint when it comes to the climate, yet we are the first ones experiencing the devastating impacts. So what, what, how have you seen the shifts in the climate on your country 
affect cultural practices. With the shifts now um, that are happening on our country, there's so many things uh, that we're noticing uh, that's impacting on some of our natural um, and native foods and fruits that used to be fruiting so much more. We don't see some of those trees um, growing anymore along the beaches. Some of the rising sea levels are also impacting some of our sacred sites um, that are really, that we hold dear and important um, to us. So many impacts that we're seeing, um, even related to some of the um, fishing grounds. So how important is it for the Western science community to understand not just the loss of the environment, but the impact on culture as well? Yes, for Indigenous people and former people, we are, it's connected, it's, it's one. It's, it's more than just a, what makes me think of a, another story too is when a child is born, we save the placenta and bury that placenta and then a tree is planted on top of that. It, it's, it instills a sense of connection, it instills a sense of responsibility uh, and it instills a sense of uh, a future, the thought of the future in how that, that tree holds the soil, that tree provides fruit and food for us, but also that tree is like an ancestor. It's a cycle. Mm. I want to speak about ancestors actually, mm. because it is such an important part of your story. Um, you, you've talked about Mabo Day and the impact of what Kweki did in the 90s. You were a child at the time when you heard about yeah. it. What do you remember from that time? Uh, it really, uh, it really struck a, a chord with me at that time, just as a as a young, as a young child, and still at school, about um, the importance of um, of having a strong voice and advocating and um, being heard um, as First Nations people, and um, it really actually sparked a um, a real flame within me to to continue that journey and and being an, an advocate um, for my peoples. Must have a lot of pride. Yes. And your people have, you know, Torres Strait Islander mob, been on the front lines time and time again, you know, from the 30s, you've had many strikes. And mm. even today, you have multiple groups and families taking cases to the United Nations, um, trying to hold the Australian government to account for the rising sea levels on your country. Can you tell me a bit about that history of protest with your peoples? Yes. Yeah, thank you for acknowledging that. And what I really want to um, hammer home with that point is that sense of um, resilience, mm. that strength of resilience to keep going in the face of adversity and um, to never give up and finding a way and finding a solution to how we move forward um, together. Uh, is really uh, something that's close close to me, and um, it's through forming some of those other those relationships. Um, it makes me think of some of our other um, traditional practices where we are trading uh, and various trading routes mm -hmm. that they were about um, building relational networks with others because you know we can't just survive on our own, but it's how we do that together with other people. I think that's that's really important. So this climate, it's um, we're all in this together. So it's um, one thing that's happening here can really affect other people um, in a remote part where I'm from. How do you see um, 
your people standing up right now. Like there, there are quite a few different groups of people who are taking direct action because of how isolated and forgotten a lot of the time mm. the Torres Strait has been by governments, consecutive mm. governments. Do you see there's a fire in everyone else's belly the way that you started to develop yours when you learnt about what was happening with Mabo? There certainly is. I think that uh, the more that we we spoke about education a little bit earlier, the more that how we um, frame some of these um, learnings to inspire our next generation is really important. And there certainly is. There's things that can happen at these larger levels at a political scale, but also what I'm noticing with my communities is they're getting on and doing what they can um, in their own in their own ways in, in everyday life. What sort of things are happening at a local level? Oh, um, there's a lot of their own uh, planting there on, on their own islands, how they're um, also uh, looking at um, different uh, changes within their use of simple everyday things, upcycling and reutilising things that are, that are there and around. Um, that are around their own communities. I've seen some beautiful recycled fishnets as well up your way. Yes, yeah, yeah, the fishnets, so many um, things that people can, can do in their own, own little ways. Yeah, while also just respecting that country all the time. So in terms of what we've just yarned about, there, and you've pointed this out so many times, there is a real obvious link between the well-being of country and the well-being of us as people. So I wanted you to kind of expand on this, this idea of the, our social and emotional well-being as First Nations peoples and the well-being of country being tied yes. into that. Yeah, no, good question because um, what I noticed and we see out there that um, there's a rise in some of the depression and all of these types of things, there's a real correlation for us mob particularly First Nations people, because mm. of that, um, that connection to a country. I spoke about how we, that, that tree they're representing, it's one of our ancestors there that was buried, that was part of their placenta and growing up, that connection to the, connection to the land and um, to all of the natural environment around us. Um, you know, when our country is sick, yeah. we, we feel sick. We can't access those same food, natural food sources that we have always um, been able to utilise. So there's a real connection and a cycle um, between that, That's between right. a strong people and a strong, healthy country. Totally, because mm. it, you know, it, you can see the impact. Like you, our people's pre-colonisation, and in many parts today, still extremely healthy. You know, living off that land, only taking what we needed and giving back extremely healthy physically, but also mm. mentally strong. And I think a lot of the time it's really lost on the mainstream community, how when you value our knowledges as equal, as uh, the first knowledges of this land, the change that happens on our psyche, on our mental mm. health, because we feel valued. Yes. Do you see yes. that in students coming through now with changes to the curriculum? Definitely. I was sharing a bit before um, with some other people um, earlier on today, uh, some of the ways of utilising a traditional Indigenous context to teach some of the scientific concepts, which was fantastic because um, 
uh, you get to see yourself there yeah. within that curriculum and um, really feel strong about that, not only improve test scores, but utilising that as a way to bridge and build reconciliation with all when you, when you see this deeper scientific and sophistication to um, First Nations peoples. The kind of learning that you were looking for when you were going through school and didn't feel that value. Mm. So what are, what are the changes that are happening right now in the curriculum and what, what else needs to happen? I think uh, at the moment there we're um, strengthening those opportunities for um, our knowledge to be within, centred in, in the curriculum, which is great. Mm -hmm. But where to next is about it takes that whole um, community to educate the children. So how do we um, get to include and um, bring in elders within the community, rangers within the community and everyone to be involved and be a part of it? Because each, each region is all different. Saltwater people, freshwater, desert. That's so important. Like, I, it's obvious to us, right? Like, when we were yarding before, I'm like, I'm desert, you're saltwater. Yeah. Like, straight away, that's how we relate to one another. We know where we're from and we try and find commonalities, but also respect our differences. Are you seeing um, a greater appreciation for that diversity, even just amongst the islands and the mainland as well? Uh, yes, uh, I think we are. Yes, slowly, slowly that's um, being appreciated and for having great opportunities like this to and platforms here like the Powerhouse Museum yeah. to provide that I think is um, fantastic and people are being more open to wanting to learn and, and hear and listen to um, our stories. So if there was one thing that you're currently involved in with the curriculum that you wish you got to learn in school, what would it be? Is there a calendar that you wish was presented differently when you were a young person? The teachings about bison, shark, yes. totem, what would you have wished you learned? Yeah, well, um, thank you for bringing that up. There's, there's the seasonal calendars that are out there, which are, which are really fantastic, mm -hmm. um, really, really good. When I think about that too, there's a role for people within our communities, the elders and uncles, to be able to pass on that knowledge yeah. to the next generation. But um, yeah, definitely, uh, I think for my interest was to be around the, the natural environment. Mm. So some of the schools that you're seeing at the moment um, actually bringing in elders and traditional knowledge holders to speak to students outside of, you know, your, your formal teaching? Yes. Um, that local uh, connection is um, really, really important. Uh, it's about understanding in your local area uh, what's happening and building that relationship up there because there's a lot of um, uh, knowledge that our elders hold mm. just to provide an opportunity and they want to be able to share that. Seeing it um, in schools down in New South Wales as well, you know, this starting to shift to this focus of rather than this pan-Aboriginality of First Nations peoples, yes, we have so much in common, but focusing on that country that the school is situated on and starting there. Yes. Because if you can say the language word for where you are, we can say we're Gadigal right now. And we need, yes. to, we need to know that because we need to know what the protocol is for walking on this place. The students then will find it a lot easier to relate to First Nations peoples globally you know, across this entire continent. If you start local and introduce them to concepts about the plants that are growing on the school grounds, you know, it makes a lot of sense. Oh yeah, definitely. And you know, just reflecting on how climate change mm. wasn't taught really at all when you were a young person yourself, 
What reaction do you see in the young people of today when they start learning about the climate? Yes. Are they feeling empowered? Are they feeling scared? Like, what, what is their reaction to learning about climate shifts, especially from a First Nations perspective? Yeah, they're seeing that they know, they're seeing that, it, that it's real, you know, through our conversations and the stories and our songs and dances that tell of our natural environment. They know it's real. Um, they feel it, they see it when they're going down um, to the beachside and knowing of these different areas where um, the grave sites are being washed away. They're feeling that sense of urgency that it's that it's important now and um, I think more and more with our new the teachers that are up and coming through to see that it's really important how they link that in with that learning and there is a real um, fire burning in that next generation definitely. So tell me about your strengths-based approach to all the work that you do and why it's so important to have a strengths-based approach when we talk about First Nations knowledges and climate and science yeah, for too long there's been that um, deficit um, mindset and also that thinking that um, all of our knowledges are archaic and only in the past, but um, they're woven into every day and I was just, um, even the reutilising of the materials that are around, make the tr um, baskets out of some of the um, traditional materials, but now utilising some of the plastic strapping that's yeah. there and upcycling, just taking that strength space to, to what's around and actually how we look at some of the resources that some people think that they're a waste, but how you can actually reutilise that and still bring in um, some of those traditional practices in the modern day. Incredible. I've seen also in a lot of artwork from your way as well, you know, really bringing in this idea that, yeah, we hang on to our traditional practices, but we're evolving as well, you know. We, ha we are making do with technology, you know, to enhance our sciences, not just Western sciences. How are you seeing technology allow your work to grow and for First Nations knowledges in yes. particular to utilise technology of today? When I was talking a bit about art, we've went to education, so many different fields. It's um, the way that we that we learn, that we share our stories. It's through through our dances, through our art, through our stories, games, and songs. What the digital technologies now been also um, working on a few projects and supporting the building the capacity of local communities, utilizing those. Um, iPads and drones to really um, tell our story and create some digital art to really tell the rest of the world of actually what's happening. Mm. Um, so we're still continuing those practices in the new in the new forms, uh, which is great because um, where people who don't only want to stimulate the mind but the heart also, um, and art is a great way to to do that. It's so true, and drones are incredible, right? Because like on my country, where we have uh, the dot painting tradition started in Western Desert and around my community, mm. that was our old people looking at our country from a bird's eye perspective. Yes. And then they got drones out and they were like, oh my God, I could see it like from a bird's eye literally now. Yeah. And it's insane how accurate our old people were before they even had that camera in the sky. It was a map, it was a map. And yes. Incredible. It is. It's... They got to trust us a bit more, hey? Oh, you're not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, you've got so much coming up, but can you think of a couple of things that you're most excited for right now in the future? 
Yeah, um, I'm really excited of um, the more of these opportunities to really forefront um, and really value um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders' um, knowledges and um, how we can shape the future together. Um, working, I'm just looking up over there and seeing a few of my other colleagues on the screen and um, how we work together. It's really about um, coming together as one and, and really respecting one another because we're all here and um, we all want to see the best um, for our future and future generations. I'm really glad that you pointed that out because I've interviewed a couple of your colleagues in the First Nations science space and you all have such a unique approach to talking about these things with so much integrity and so much culture. How important is that, um, that peer group of First Nations scientists who are all coming at it with similar values and goals? Oh, yeah, it's so important having the leadership in, in, in various places, within institutions, within, from a grassroots community. Um, we're all experiencing um, similar um, situations, but um, when we come together as, as one, it really strengthens, um, strengthens us and our own well-being. So I've got last question for you just around what do you hope for the future of First Nations sciences and knowledges? And what do you hope for the future of your country? Yeah, wow. Really, I hope for the future to, to see that really recognised, our, our science knowledge is really recognised and acknowledged um, everywhere throughout, to have leadership of our mob in all of those levels and, and voices that are, that are heard. What I hope to see for um, my country and community is for us to really feeling that we can grow up happy and healthy and connected um, to our place and being able to share our wonderful region with, with others and to everyone to come along on that journey where we're feeling prosperous and um, in our own ways that's, that respects our community, our people and um, all of those resources that are there around us. Incredible. Thank you, Taurus. Can everyone you, please Rachel. give a big round of applause? Appreciate it. To follow the program online, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, to visit the 100 Climate Conversations exhibition or join us for a live recording, go to 100climateconversations.com. This is a significant new project for the museum and records of the conversation are going to form a new climate change archive preserved for future generations in the powerhouse collection of over 500,000 objects that tell the stories of our time. See more from the museum at Powerhouse on Twitter and at Powerhouse Museum on Instagram and Facebook.